Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, the passage that we read last week and a bit more. So Romans 8, 1 verse 5, uh, verse, sorry, Romans 1 verse 8 through to 17. And the Apostle Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it, again, open our hearts to receive the message that is contained in these verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to focus on verses 16 and 17. Um, These are pivotal verses uh, in the book. uh, But I want to just begin this way. Every parent, I think, knows uh, that when a child reaches uh, a certain age, um, the desire to understand things, anything... Uh, kicks in, and the, ch- the child starts asking, why, mommy, why, daddy? Um, you know, so as a father, I remember as a, uh, when my daughter was that, uh, at that age, uh, why, daddy, do you have to go to work every day? Uh, well, to earn money. Why do we need money, daddy? So that we can have food and clothing and shelter. Why do we need food, daddy? Uh, If we don't eat, we'll die. (laughs) Why do we die, Daddy? And so on it goes. You see, you can always keep asking the why question. There's something of a similar structure uh, going on here uh, in what Paul is saying in these early verses, uh, in this first chapter. A few verses earlier, we saw uh, in verse 11 that uh, Paul is longing to be with the Romans. Uh, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some gift, to, spiritual gift to strengthen you. And in particular, when you come to verse 15, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. Remember, Paul has never been to Rome. He's uh, intending to pass through, uh, to go on his way to Spain, but he's got to go to Jerusalem first. And, uh, but then he's going to come back, and he's going to come pass through, and he wants to preach the gospel to the Romans. And now this chain of answers uh, 
to a sequence of questions begin. Uh, Paul says, so I long to preach the gospel. And we could say, well, why is that, Paul? Well, verse 16, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why is that, Paul? Why are you not ashamed? Verse 16, because it's the power of God for salvation. Now, why is that? Why is it the power of God for salvation, Paul? For because in it a righteousness from God is revealed. Verse 17. And so the chain goes on. It actually goes on in verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. There's a sequence of four statements. Reasons that follow on from what he's just said. And today I just want to think it with you about the first of those three things of, those, of that chain. In verses 16 and 17. And they are fundamental to understanding the message of this letter. Uh, Indeed, to understanding how it is that God brings salvation to the world. And the first thing to say this, this afternoon is that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed. I long to preach it because I'm not ashamed of it. Now, why would he say that at this point? Um, It would be understandable if he said something like, I long to preach the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. But he puts a step in the middle. He says, I long to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So why does he do that? Why does he point out how he is not ashamed of the gospel? Well, we need to understand something about how the gospel was received by the crowds who... Uh, to whom he spoke when he was ministering uh, the gospel. Particularly to the Greeks and to the Gentiles. Uh, Just ask yourself, when Paul went about his ministry, did he, you read read it in the book of Acts, was he received with open arms? Oh, come on, Paul, we've been waiting for years for this message that you have come to bring us. We've been waiting and waiting and we, we still haven't found what we're looking for. But now you've come. Is that what they were saying to Paul? Well, Paul turns up. And he starts preaching the gospel. And do they say, I've now at last I've found what I'm looking for? Well, no, of course they don't. You may remember when Paul went to Athens in Acts chapter 17. And he goes into the, uh, the Areopagus, uh, the, the, that uh, marketplace. Uh, where the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers would sit around and uh, blather about the latest, uh, the latest uh, theories and philosophical ideas and so on. And then they listened to Paul. And uh, what did they say about Paul? They said, what does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> Paul is a babbler to them. And Paul's summary of this is that to the world... The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, who are dying, destined for destruction. And Paul's experience has been that to a significant proportion of his hearers, the gospel is the craziest thing they've ever heard. That's the gospel that we we looked at and we thought about. It's the uh, verses 3 and 4 of this chapter. Do you remember this gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
This is the gospel about Jesus. This is the gospel about his death, about his resurrection. And as Paul is preaching that into that first century setting, whether it's Jewish or whether it's Gentile, nobody is expecting that kind of message, that somebody can be raised from the dead. And so it's crazy. It's foolishness. It's babbling. Babbling. I'd like to think things are different now, but I'm afraid it's not, is it? (laughs) It's pretty much the same. Uh, You go and tell people about the gospel, and very often people will say to you, that's just crazy. doesn't make sense. And people think that Christians are strange, that we are babblers, that we're mad. And uh, that brings for us a temptation, doesn't it? It brings for us the temptation to say, I'm ashamed of the gospel. I'm secretly ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to say too much to my friends because actually I don't want to be ashamed in front of them. But Paul is very straightforward here. He says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because although he knows the reaction he's going to get, he also knows something much more important about the gospel. Something that we need to know and learn and believe with all our hearts if we are to be effective in our evangelism. And it brings us to the next thing. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And before we can understand it as power, we need to understand why we need that power. Why we need salvation. What does he mean? By salvation. Why do people need to be saved? What do they need to be saved from? Well, that's a very important question, isn't it? Uh, Can't the human race just go on as it is and just get a bit better? And do things a bit better? Doing good. And one day we'll all find ourselves at the pearly gates of heaven. And uh, we can just expect God to welcome us in. Because, well, you've done good in the world. Is that what the gospel is? Often that's people's assumption, isn't it? If we're just good enough, we'll get into heaven and we'll be okay. But Paul is about to go on and spell out the symptoms of the problems that human beings have in this chapter. He spells out the problems of behavior, the problems of the heart and the problems of the mind and how we think. And it all has one common cause. Uh, Sin. The sin of our hearts. Which in its most basic definition is simply this. The consistent and persistent habit of contradicting the authority of God by the rejection of his commandments and spurning his grace and his love. And the desire that all human beings have when they think about God is to say to him, yes, but I know better. I know better. It's a condition that reaches deep into the heart. It's not a superficial thing at all at the level of mere behavior sin. It affects the heart. It affects the the passions 
It affects what you love, what you hate, what you accept, what you reject. Sin is a condition that is so deep that it has a hold on us. And later in the letter, he's going to call it a slavery, a form of slavery from which there is no escape. It's a weird kind of slavery. It's a weird kind of slavery because we actually kind of love our enslavement. Believing anything is better than God. And it's even worse. We love to do it with other people. We love to sin with other people. If we can enlist other people to join us in our sins, all the better. There was a great saint of the past, Saint Augustine, uh, who, right at the end of the 4th century, uh, wrote a book called Confessions. He was examining his own heart before God. And... um, he was examining various stages in his life, and uh, he, was, he came to describe a, an incident as a teenager. Um, he was with some, uh, some well-dodgy friends, and uh, one of his neighbors uh, had a pear tree in it, and it was ripe with fruit, and he, is, he and his pals decided they were going to steal the pears. Now, they didn't do it because they were hungry. And they didn't even do it because they were, they were nice pears. Um, actually, Augustine says, well, I, you know, my, in my house, we had a better pear tree with better pears. But he, he and his friends decided they were going to steal the pears anyway. And as he was thinking about this later, many years later, he, he identified the reason why he was willing to steal the pears. For the sheer pleasure of sinning. He enjoyed the act of sinning. And even better, he could do it with his pals. Let's just get together and do a bit of sinning. You know, this is the kind of thing. This is how sin gets a hold of us. How it grips us. How it holds us. You know, and in the end... Uh, Augustine didn't want to eat the pears. In fact, they just dumped the whole load in a pigsty and the pigs ate them. That's what sin does. It offers a reward of pleasure, but not the pleasure in the thing itself, but the pleasure in doing the thing. And the pleasure in doing it with other people. And here's the thing. Such a person is destined to die once and after that face judgment. Because of the sin. And when they come before God, they will not have a leg to stand on. Friends, there's no power on earth that can free us from the consequences of such depths of sin in our own lives. We cannot even deal with the symptoms of the problems as the politicians try to do. And all those social problems that we face that seem so intractable to us. Because there is no solution, no human solution, that goes deep enough into the human heart to deal with it. No, we need a divine solution. Because only in God is there power enough to provide a solution to our sin. And that solution is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. That's why Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, 
The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Now, if you think about the gospel, it seems so flimsy, doesn't it? Uh, so, so weak, so pathetic. You know, it's just words in the air that go from my mouth to your ears. And you proclaim the gospel. And it could just seem like a fool babbling in the corner. But not for God. That simple method of proclaiming the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Paul is going to explain how the gospel works in all its aspects in the remainder of that letter, of this letter. And all we need to know at this point is that in this message about Jesus Christ, there is power to radically change our lives. I'll say more about faith in a moment, but Christians, as you sit here with me today, do you believe that with all your heart, that this gospel message has the power to change lives, the power to save? If it is true, and it is, then we are all destined to die once and once only come before a holy God and nothing humanly speaking can save us from our sin and from its consequences. And therefore we need the gospel and its power to save us from that eventuality. And this gospel is the only hope for the world. That's why there's a church. That's why the church preaches it. That's why you and I, when we leave this place, we go out into our places of work, amongst our neighbors and our friends and our family members and so on, we have the opportunity to go with the sense that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and begin to look for opportunities to begin to explain it to people. Well, how is it the power of God for salvation? Well, that brings us to the third thing. How does that power come to us? Well, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in verse 17. Here's the question. If the problem we have with God is our sin, and, it's, and it is that that will bring upon us the righteous judgment of God, then what is it that we most need? Well, we need righteousness, don't we? That word, righteousness. We need it. We need to be righteous before God. But how can we be righteous before God? Some people assume that, well, okay, let's, let's try and be righteous. Let's try and uh, live a better life. Let's live a, a good life. Let's obey the commandments. Let's try hard to live a moral, law-abiding life. And that should be okay with God, shouldn't it? That way of thinking is probably the greatest hindrance to receiving salvation that you can imagine. Because sin is so deep that self-righteousness is a dominant force in our hearts. And so when we start to say, well, I could be good enough if I just try a bit harder, then self-righteousness wins. And it can't work. Two reasons why it can't work. Just trying to be better. 
Two reasons. Firstly, your past sins count against you. You can't undo them. You can't go back and relive those moments. And the penalty for them still stands. So that's a problem, isn't it? But here's the second reason. If you try and live a moral life as though that would satisfy God, it's to fail to understand the depth of your problem. You may be able to act in a way that looks the part, but you can never be the part just by trying harder. That's what many Christians have found down the centuries. They've been brought to the point of despair because they've tried harder to to be good. Martin Luther is a great example of that. He tried desperately to be holy. And the more he tried to deal with the deepest sins that he could find, he always found more sins undealt with. There were even more underneath the surface. And it was a recipe for disaster until he discovered the truth of this verse. Verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. What we need is God's righteousness. Okay, so what do we mean by the righteousness of God here? Uh, There are four possible meanings. Uh, Two that it can't mean, and two that it can mean. Uh, The the two that it can't mean are this. It can't mean my righteousness that counts with God. Because, as I've said, we've just seen nobody can have that. Nobody can be righteous. Nor can it mean God's personal righteousness or holiness. Because that's actually the very problem. Because of his holiness and our sin, we deserve judgment. So it can't mean God's personal holiness and righteousness. But here's the two things that it can mean. Number one is from a phrase that is used in the Old Testament where the righteousness of God is often equivalent to his saving activity. So, for example, uh, Isaiah 56 verse 1 says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, and soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. You see? Salvation and righteousness are, are interchangeable. And so God's righteousness is his saving activity. It's the sum total of all the things that he does to save his people. But here's the second thing it means. A righteousness that God provides for us that can become ours because he gives it to us. So the righteousness of God can mean both of those things. It means God's saving activity and making over to us a righteousness that is not our own, that we do not have by ourselves, but in receiving that righteousness from God, he is able to deal with our sin. And where do we find that righteousness? The righteousness of God. We'll find it in the gospel. We'll find it as we look at Jesus Christ and his work uh, for us. When we see Jesus, it all begins to come together. Jesus and his work. Because Jesus, here we see Jesus coming in the flesh, becoming like a man of the seed of David, as he says earlier, living a perfect, sinless life. Uh, He was morally righteous and pure, but that morally righteous man suffered for sins that he did not commit. And as he did so, uh, he did so so that people like you and me, as we, we could benefit from his righteousness. So in Jesus, we see 
the saving activity of God and a righteousness that can become ours. And so Jesus and his death and his resurrection are absolutely essential to any hope of salvation. How does it come how does it then become ours? How does that righteousness become ours? Well, that's in the next two parts. First of all, it is revealed. Not just the rev- now I need to point this out to be clear about this. This is not just the revelation that provides us with information uh, that we can read in a book. This is the deeper revelation. This is the kind where we see the true nature of our problem and we are filled with fear at the danger that we face in that we have to die once and after that face judgment. But then it is revealed to us the saving work of Jesus Christ. And our hearts go out to him in love. And it's the kind of revelation that, that affects us deeply because God is has made known that saving activity to us and, and it begins to bear upon real human hearts. That it's that kind of revelation that's been revealed to us. And you begin to experience salvation in a new and wonderful way. How do you begin to experience that salvation? Well, that's the final phrase. From faith to faith. From faith for faith. Which is a, a puzzling phrase. There's a lot been written about it. But let me just tell you what, what I think it means. That the experience that a person has of having the righteousness of God revealed to you is one of living faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. And it is a life-changing belief. It's faith in Christ. Faith in as you see Christ and you see him with new eyes, that he is everything to you and everything you need is found in him. And you look at him and you find that your heart is changed. And you give up hope of ever trying your hardest to please God in the hope that he'll accept you. And instead, you look to Jesus and you see all that God has wonderfully done for you in him. It is from faith to faith. That's why faith matters so much. Because it's by faith that you appropriate the righteousness that Jesus has. And it becomes mine. A righteousness from God is revealed. And that's how a person is saved. Every person is saved through faith in Christ. By grace. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, friends, we, we need to wind up, but there's a lot here, isn't there? Even in just these two verses. But it's a very simple message. And I just want to ask you today, has God come to you in saving faith today? Has God come to your heart in this way? Has he revealed the way of salvation to you today? Has he shown you that salvation is only through Christ by faith alone? Has he caused you to realize that all your efforts at goodness in the hope of acceptance are completely futile? Has he presented before your eyes of faith the Lord Jesus Christ himself? See, this is what faith is, is all about. 
It's through faith that you get Christ. And when you get Christ, you have salvation. You're brought into that saving relationship with Christ. And when you get him, you have everything you need. You get the righteousness of God because it is Christ's righteousness. And it is freely given through faith in him. What a wonderful gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Thank you for your righteousness that you give over to us. Thank you that Jesus came and suffered and died in our place. Help us to believe that with all our hearts and help us to find acceptance in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.